Author, screenwriter, and director Edgar Carrette is a recipient of the French Chevalier des Arts et Lettres, the Charles Bronfman Prize, and the Camera d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival for Jellyfish, which he directed with his wife, Shira Geffen. Most recently, they created the TV miniseries The Middleman, L'Agent Automobilier, starring Mathieu Amaric. His books include the short story collections Fly Already, Suddenly a Knock on the Door, and his memoir The Seven Good Years. Edgar's work has been translated into 45 languages and has appeared in The New Yorker, The Paris Review, The New York Times, and This American Life. A frequent collaborator with visual and performing artists, an exhibition inspired by his mother called Inside Out is currently showing at the Jewish Museum in Berlin until February 5th, 2023. Edgar Kahetz, welcome back to The Creative Process. Hi, I'm glad to be back. Since we last spoke, you have so many books and stories and your television project and the exhibition that you had in memory of your mother, which is very moving. I remember in our last conversation, you had discussed some of the last days of your father in hospital and so many of your stories and film and television are in conversation with both your parents, this sense of joy and their appreciation for life. May I ask, what was the last conversation you had with your mother? Well, I think, you know, that the last time we talked, she was already in dementia. So I think that the last time we talked, we held her hand. We said, they love you. And I said to her, you know who I am? And she said, yes, of course. Don't be silly. You're my father. I think this was the last conversation we had or something like that. But I want to say that there is something I think about both my parents, but I think especially my mother, it's as if the horrible circumstances that they lived through, being Jews in the Holocaust, my mother losing her entire family. It was horrible and traumatic, but it was almost like a very extreme human experiment. And it created something. It's like many times when you put somebody in extreme situations and most of the time he will crash or she will crash, but sometimes a superhero will be born. And there is something about my parents that when I came to work on the exhibition of my mother, I realized that there is something about her was so unique that it could not have been achieved in normal time. Because the thing that happened with my mother was that when the war started, she was five years old. When the war ended, she was 11 years old. By the time she was about 10, all the people that she had known before the war had died. Her parents, her brother, her grandfather, her friends. So basically, by the time that the war was over, she had nobody who could collaborate or refute her memories. And her entire childhood was totally based on senses and experience and not about any kind of process. Because if you think about it, that let's say if I ask you, I don't know, Mia, tell me about your childhood. And you would say, I was born in this and this city, in this and this date. And at the time, the prime minister was this guy and we were going through recession. But the way that my mother would tell, it would have no details. It would be very much like a fairy tale. Is that sense that she would tell a story, not thinking that her personal history is a part of a great history. It's not as if she's like a little pebble in the mosaic of the Second World War, but more as if she's a Hollywood star in a periodical film. You know, if you go and see, I don't know, Brad Pitt or Scarlett Johansson in a movie, and then you say, I don't remember if it's in Roman time or Greek time, or is it Byzantine or Sparta? I don't know, but it's with Brad Pitt and Scarlett Johansson. So with my mother, I think it was a little bit like it's her story and the most horrible things that happened to her are things that can scar her or can improve her but they're still part of a story it reminds me a little bit let's say the way that we tell ourselves fairy tales because when you think about little red riding 
childhood than in the end of the story she doesn't have a post-trauma and we don't know a lot about the year in which it happened or how many wolves there were in the jungle the thing is that horrible things happen around her and they formulate her identity and they formulate facts that she will not trust wolves but she will trust hunters you know but all of this makes some kind of a childlike weird sense and I think that there is something about the ways that my mother would tell her history or stories in general that even when she grew up because she got orphaned she would keep telling the stories in this certain way and the funny thing about it is that only when I started working on this exhibition I realized that my style of writing was completely inspired by the ways that my mother told me stuff because when you're a child you do things like your parents do and the fact that names are not important that dates are not important that places are not important just some kind of an inner subjective feeling is something that resonates in my stories because most of my characters they don't have any names and most of the stories have the same kind of logic of my mom and the thing about it if I have to compare it's like let's say when my father would tell his story or history it would be a little bit like a mathematical equation or a graph there was something that was kind of consistent and that started with his childhood and ended with his death with my mother it was more like a pearl necklace she would tell a story which would be a pearl and then another one another one another one and the idea was that this chain accumulated to something that was kind of gestalt like it was more than each of those separate pearls you were able to extrapolate something out of it and I feel that as a child I felt that I was getting so much from her stories and that compared to other stories that I heard around me that I wanted to hear these kind of stories and I guess when I grew up I wanted to tell these kind of stories. Yes, well you definitely have this sense of the spirit and the metaphor and I think that's why you occupy a unique space among writers where there is this magic and enchantment and the feeling no matter what the sad subject which could be suicide or loss or elements of war I don't like to call it because they're adult fairy tales but I never feel saddened and I wondered is it also to do with a sense of pace or the palette this feeling there's a mythical element so I'm never sad by them so I think that there was something about my mother that she was a true rebel and an anarchist not by choice but by education because the fact that she grew up in a, a place in which you could not trust anyone or you could not trust the narratives in which basically the grown-ups that she met were not like I don't know my parents who would help me navigate in life but they were like a kind of evil orphanage managers who would steal her food or who would try to molest her or do all those horrible things so in that sense, she kind of relied only on herself for a narrative, which means that you kind of uh, begin your stories. Every story you begin, it's a little bit like the beginning of the first verse of the Bible. You know, it's chaos and darkness and you create something out of it. And I think that, uh, let's say, in literature... I'm saying something very deductive. You have writers like Charles Dickens who are telling the story of a society, of a nation, of a time. I don't know if I would try to find the modern TV equivalent. It's like, I don't know, The Wire, you know, those kind of series that kind of cover out of things. And there is this kind of creation that is more, I would say, let's say like Kafka stories that you feel that it's not, it doesn't come from some kind of perception that tries to describe the word. But it's a perception that tries to describe the human experience. So it doesn't really matter so much what's out there, but what matters is how you experience it. And I think that there is something about, let's say, the preference between those two kinds of stories can come from different philosophies or ontologies. But I think that first and foremost, this preference comes from what you experience at an early age. 
and what seems to you kind of, let's say, storytelling process. And I think that there was something about my mother, that there was something about her storytelling, that it was all about gaining freedom from the cage that history tried to put her in. It's like, for example, my mom really, really disliked the notion of a, a Holocaust survivor. She didn't like people calling her a Holocaust survivor. And it wasn't really because of the word survivor, but it was this idea that she felt pigeonholed. And in a sense, I think that everything I learned from my mother was some kind of an education to resist the identity culture. Because my mother, for example, she loved Wagner. And Wagner was an anti-Semite and loved by the Nazis. And my mother said, you know, if this guy would come for coffee, I would poison him. But listening to his music, I just like his music and I don't care. And my parents read Celine and Ezra Pound. And they made this separation between those two things. And in it, again, both of them resisted to be seen as something that is kind of clear, like a Holocaust survivor, victims. I remember that I once went with my mother to a place where you had to wait in line. And a young man asked that they let mother in first. And he said, let her go first. She's a Holocaust survivor. And my mother smiled and looked at him and she said to him, the fact that I'm a Holocaust survivor, what does it mean? I think that what it means is that if this queue would last for four or five hours, that you'll probably drop dead long before me. I already proved that I can prevail. So why would you want me to go first? So there was something about these ideas. I think that we live today in an age where victimhood is almost... Value. I think when you talk to people, I think that they almost as out of negotiation, they want to show their weaknesses, their hurt, their pain, their limitation as if this would allow them something. It's really like, I think if I have to find some kind of a metaphor for the world today, it's for me is I hope that you, that this will not remind you of something that you went through. I did, but it's a little bit like you go to an ER in a hospital, let's say at midnight or 1 a.m. And there are a bunch of people waiting and all of them are waiting way too long. They're bleeding, they're hurting, they're afraid, they're tired. They want somebody to see them. And then at a certain point, the doctor comes and he asks for this page. And then everybody jumps and shouts, my wife is unconscious. Don't you see? I'm bleeding from my eyes. They're doing all those kind of things. And in the end, the doctor accepts one of them. So I think that this is the situation we're living in, you know, in the 2022. And what I want to say is that when I see this situation, I'm totally empathic to it because the man that his wife is unconscious or the woman that bleeds from her eyes, they should get better treatment. You know, they should be treated. But the idea is if you'd ask me if I would want to a hospital managed this way, I wouldn't want to go there because except for the fact that there is a feeling of anarchy and uncertainty and a system that is not decided and it's not professionally decided who will be treated first. I think more than that, it's a system in which the person who gets treated is not necessarily the one who's most ill, but the one who shouts the loudest. The one who's unconscious will not be represented. And I think that, let's say, I'm sorry for the degradation, but if we talk about, let's say, identity culture, then I don't know if you heard about this idea of Jew face. You heard about Sarah Silverman basically claiming that it's not a good or fair that Gentiles portray Jews in movies instead of Jews portraying Jews. So I'm saying in general, I think that this is all very, very silly and acting is all about 
being somebody that you are not and that I don't think that anyone should play anyone because of their identity or they should play stuff because they're good actors but I'm saying that let's say if this claim would have come from the sociopath organization saying we are misrepresented in Hollywood movies and you know next time when you want to cast a sociopath killer please take a sociopath actor so it will be more authentic and also sociopath actors have a very hard time finding a job so it will be also helpful and appreciated then this initiative would probably never reach you because you don't know many famous sociopaths and it's also not very sexy but when Sarah Silverman who's so funny and does all those funny skits about Trump wants to give her idea she has a much better leverage so in the end It all becomes like this kind of room where hundreds of people are rushing to you and say, I'm first, I'm first, can leverage his power the most. And you listen to the one who's loudest or pushiest or... And there is something about this that also, let's say, ethically or rationally, it's totally wrong. Because what happened is that we would want to live in a system where justice is being served, where we're doing the things that is best. But here, the people who fight for a specific kind of justice are the people that this justice is in their own interest. It's like, it's Sarah Silverman talking about Jew face. It's not you talking about Jew face. Don't say, oh, those poor Jewish actors, they don't have job. I'm going to... It's people who say, what's right is to do what's good for me. So there is something kind of problematic in this kind of argumentation. We would want justice to be something that we would join. I would want to argue for gay rights even if I'm straight. I would want to argue for women's rights even if I'm a man. You know, it shouldn't be treated as a gang war. The moment that it's like it's a gang war, it feels much more like white superiority. It's kind of this idea, we are a group and we want what Jews will not replace us as they said, you know. So I'm saying that through my mother, I kind of realized that this idea of reducing yourself to something, reducing yourself to a Holocaust survivor, making yourself a pebble in a big mosaic, kind of giving up your individuality, it's not a good thing. It's not worth what you're going to get. So they let her go to the doctor first, but the price that she'll have to pay will be that she could stop creating her identity and occupy the identity given to her. And the title of this exhibition, which you should mention, is Inside Out, which beautifully encapsulates that. And I think what's also so nice about you as a writer, a filmmaker, a multidisciplinary artist who engages across so many disciplines is that you have this specificity about telling stories both within Israel and elsewhere, but you embrace and you listen to other cultures. And that's why you've been able to resonate. And really, I mean, it's like maximal customization for all the different territories, which we love to receive your stories around the world. Thanks. Yes, I must say that the big gift of writing is that through translations, you meet people all over the world. And I must say that my experience, my books came out, I don't know, in about 50 languages in more countries than that and through traveling I actually learned that the people are much more similar than I thought to begin with I can tell you that when my first book came out in Turkey which is one of the countries I'm most popular in then it was a time of a big tension between Turkey and Israel and there was a recommendation from the foreign office that Israelis will not travel to Turkey at the time but I wanted to go to the first event of my book and I went there and when I went to the event just before the event you always speak in a hall to see the audience and I looked at the audience and I saw that it was basically almost full of men with big beards, Muslim dressing and women with covered faces and being a Jew coming from Israel in a time where there is a big tension 
between Muslims and Turkey and Israel, I said to my publisher, I don't want to go on stage because it seems like they came here to attack me. It's not my people. And she said to me, no, 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 they're your fans. And then I realized that the first book that came out in Turkey was called Nero's Happy Campers. And it talks about an afterlife of suicide. And I realized that in Shia belief, Shia are a part of the Muslim religion, a sect, they believe that all the people who kill themselves, they go to the same hell. So what happened was that those people found in a story that I kind of made up as some kind of a weird sci-fi slacker story, something that resonates, something that had to do with their belief and said, oh, my God, you know, this guy, he writes about something that we've been trying to imagine that because of our scriptures. So I had many, many experiences like this, that you go to a distant place with the experiences that feel super specific. I don't know, bus driver in Tel Aviv did something and you write a story about it. And then you travel to Korea or you travel to Sweden or you travel to Australia and people ask you if this is the number 12 line bus in Sydney or Stockholm or whatever, because they feel that this thing that you experience in a remote part of the world, it resonates exactly with their own experience. So I think that this idea of being kind of meeting different audiences, something that except, you know, for the artistic merits makes me feel closer to humanity in general. And I want to say that, you know, if I follow the last few years, you know, the projects that I did, I did projects that were not, it did not appeal to all the world. But if I did the La Jeanne Immobilier TV series in France, it was seen by French people. If I did the Outside with Imbal Pinto, a video dance, a Japanese-speaking video dance, it was mostly seen by Japanese people. Now, if I do an exhibition in Germany, it will mostly be seen by German audience. And there is something interesting that kind of meeting each of these kind of audience in different circumstances and in different artistic experience is part of the artistic adventure. It's not only making art, but it's also sharing it with people or in contexts that you didn't experience before. And I think in your work, as you said, obviously that's a collaboration when you have the translation, so they're putting it in the idiom and the tone. But say in your film work or some dance work like that, the middleman had a very French sensibility. You're not thinking, which is not always the case with some artists, like you say, a certain American artist, they often like to orientate it around their culture and just keep it the same. It doesn't adapt to the local culture. But you adapt and it just felt completely of a piece, I felt. It just completely and of course a wonderful interpretation by Mathieu Amaric and others so it was very beautifully done and it got right into I feel our sensibility well, thanks but I really want to say for me there is something about uh, art that it's not a monologue it's a dialogue and you know some people let's say it doesn't matter who they speak to they will speak in the same way they would speak to a five-year-old or to an intellectual or to somebody who doesn't speak the language very well they would speak the same way and they don't care because this is what they have to say but I think that the natural thing in a dialogue is really to look in the eyes of the person you speak to and see when he understands or when she doesn't understand or when she's moved or when he's angry and basically out of that kind of create your own language and I think that the same way that people are excited about it, learning new languages and speaking in different languages because I think each language has different merits you know and different aspects so I basically speak Hebrew and English many things in the world it's easier for me to understand through English and not through Hebrew. So this idea, this kind of learning, this new language, it kind of allows me some kind of versatility and understanding the word better. So I think that having a dialogue with specific different kind of audiences does the same. You know, it's like, I think when I started publishing and my books started becoming successful, the first thing I did was I wrote a children book because I thought in life, I like speaking to adults, but I also like speaking to children. So if adults find it interesting, my stories, then I should tell a story to a child too. 
Now, of course, when I write a children's book, it's written in maybe a different vocabulary or it tells a different story than I would tell for adults. But it's mostly, I would say, a nuance. It's not something that is different in essence. And I think the same is true that, let's say, when I do a video dance for a Japanese audience or a sci-fi comedy for a French audience, then I do try to think about if I want to shock the audience in a certain moment. Then I think that the same thing that would shock a French person would not necessarily shock an Israeli or shock a Japanese person, you know? And I think that what's funny is that with Jean Immobilier, a lot of people like the fact that it's very extreme. But Israelis, when they watched it, they never thought it was extreme. They said it was very funny. But because the Israeli reality is much more extreme. So the idea of people shouting at each other or breaking a wall or punching each other or doing weird stuff. Then if in French, they said, oh, it's over the top, you know. In Israel, they felt that it was just like the way things are. So it's very, very interesting. Yes, it's funny. I didn't find it shocking, but I think it's that veil that you mentioned about going back like a fable. You feel like, oh, this is still part of a dream of childhood. Actually, I want to go into dreams, but I want to say something. Maybe you'll find this funny. Yesterday, I had a conversation with, he's supposed to be a global expert in the science of happiness and pain. And I thought he's going to tell me everything I possibly could be told about because he got like two million for his lab to do this. And he's written about it, but he had no stories about it. But then I thought, that's okay. I'm talking to Ecker tomorrow. And I think as a writer, you're like an expert in the science of happiness and pain. The truth is that right now I'm in a lot of pain. So if he has a tip, then it would be nice. No, he's not that kind of doctor. It's more like theory of, but no stories. Ah. And I found that very interesting. But I can tell you one thing about pain that I've been learning now. And that's the thing that I feel is that usually when I experience pain, I just want it to stop. I want to avoid it. But with my back hernia, it has been a few months with kind of a nonstop pain because they give you those opiatic pills that I don't take because they can't write when I take them. So I said to myself, okay, you know, if I meet pain randomly once every few months when I go to the dentist, you know, I can tell it, just go away. I hate you. Spit on it. But if we're sleeping in the same bed, then I must change my attitude toward it. Like, I cannot live in the same apartment with pain day in, day out and say, go away, go away, when it stays, you know? I have to build a relationship with it. And I think that there is something about pain that I see it now differently. You know, it's kind of like, let's say, I feel that my instinctive reaction to pain was, what the hell? Why did you do that? Get your hands off me, you know? Something that is that has a lot of anger and fear in it. And now, the first thing I think about pain is, what should I stop doing right now? Why is my body telling me me this right now because this idea was that I stopped seeing pain as this guy slapping me in the street or punching me with no provocation and I kind of said okay this is a guy shaking me say and say okay okay well, what do you want you know it's really I don't know if it's helpful but it helps me <laughs> I know it's really hard and I can't say this from first-hand experience but we become that we want to avoid pain so much and that there is something to be embraced in it it's really hard for me to say that because I don't know your circumstances did that come from the car accident you had yeah, it's a process because I broke two ribs and because of that, I guess my back rotation became more limited and in the end it became a herniated disc or whatever. But it's really, I think, you know, I mean, I'm 55 years old, something has to break, you know. Yes, that was something that you wrote in Inside Out, that we are all broken I think that, let's say, if I try to think about my mother's story, is really this idea that you don't have a complete picture, but it's broken to pieces and you can look at each of them and try to imagine the pieces or collect them, but there is something that is fragmented by nature. Yes, in fact, insisting on a whole picture is probably the larger illusion or a larger lie, because in reality, there is no complete picture. I think you have to be God, right? I think that there are many complete pictures, but in a sense, they're all kind of reductive. And the truth is, 
that it's strange, but I think that, let's say, if there's a collective narrative that you totally identify with, then one should go with it. It doesn't matter if it's the Catholic Church or Antipa or the Cuckoo's Clan. If people say something, they say, oh my God, yes, I got it. They cracked it. Yeah, give me a torch. Now I got it. It's good enough. But I think that at least the experience that I have many times is that I'm too passive and there are kind of narratives passing by and I hitchhike kind of sitting on a narrative without really judging and thinking it. They say, oh, it's nice. Oh, people say it's good, you know? And from my mother, I learned to be very, very critical of all those narratives because the fact that many people say something and are excited about it doesn't mean anything. Quite a few of Edgar's points really make you think in this particular conversation, especially of talking about artists. I really loved Edgar's perspective on separating the art from the artist and how his mother liked Wagner's music but would not like him if she met him as a person because he was an anti-Semite. And it makes you think, what exactly are artists who are controversial nowadays going to be viewed as 30, 40, 50 years from now in the future when people focus less on the personality behind them and focus more on the art? It's a lot like Wagner, it's a lot like Charles Dickens, it's a lot like H.P. Lovecraft. You know, these people were not exactly the best people in their time, but nowadays they're hailed as geniuses, artistic geniuses. And it makes you wonder what kind of perspective we're going to have on the controversial artists of today, 30, 40, 50 years from now, once all of the controversy kind of dies down and the artist becomes diluted into one person and the person themselves becomes diluted into another. I also really liked Edgar's perspective on actors taking other people's jobs, other people's cultures, and think about how our modern culture obsesses over casting people based on specific traits. And I think that while a serious conversation about diversity in movies and television shows, books, and just art in general needs to be made, I think that talk of diversity also comes with a price because we have to make sacrifices about what we think will make the art stand out in the best way that it can. And so I find Edgar's perspective fascinating on this and to think about what our diversity conversations will look like, again, when we've had more time to digest a possible solution for including more people in our conversations. Because my mom grew up in a period where they were excited about Nazi ideology. And my mom knew that this wasn't a good thing. So this idea of kind of making up your own story instead of taking other people's stories is something that was very important. You know, when I was a child, my mother didn't allow children book in our home because she insisted on making the stories for us. And for her, basically, it was kind of like the idea of reading us a classic from a book was like ordering a pizza instead of cooking dinner. It meant that she didn't care about us. And she felt because her parents told her bedtime stories in the ghetto where they had no access to books. And for her, she saw how those people who were broken and angry and hurting could still find in their imagination a brand new story that they made for somebody that they loved. So for her, it was this kind of generosity and something that could not be compared to buying Alice in Wonderland and reading it to somebody. You had to give more than that. You don't hire somebody who will make love to your lover for you. And then you say, I love you so much. I hired these really good guys or good girls that would 
make love to you instead of me, you know? So this idea of being there and being authentic and giving yourself was really, really important. And I think that from a young age, I've kind of learned that there are good stories, great stories, but none of them is your story. And that you have to kind of make up your own story and not feel just good enough kind of picking up one. And it doesn't matter if it's about flat earths or some conspiracy or wanting to clear the world from plastic or going vegan, which I'm vegan and vegetarian. So it's just this idea of joining some kind of Boy Scouts or wearing some kind of uniform or supporting some sports club and saying, okay, now I don't have to think. I'm the New York Knicks fan. So if they win, I'm happy. If they lose, I'm sad. I think that there is something both with my mother and my father being a Holocaust survivor, being orphaned. Basically, they had to seek their narrative. They didn't inherit one. It's not like my parents always said that you do like this, you know, and then you can either do what your parents said or rebel against them. It's this idea of what the hell do I do? And they're looking out and inside to find my narrative, to find my ethics, to find my values. And so you said about this running narrative between the importance of truth over facts or how the story feels over what happened, but that's just a chronology. Do you have a good memory? Yeah. Again, you know, it's strange. It's like I have a very good memory and I would say I have a very bad memory. So when I was young, when I was 21, I would compete in those kind of game shows like Mastermind, you know, the British one, or like those kind of game show where you have to answer all those general knowledge questions and stuff and I was very good at it and I remember a lot of trivia knowledge that very very few people I think remember but at the same time there are many many very basic things that I don't know it's like I give you a strange example is that when we flew to Berlin for the opening of the exhibition my mother told me hundreds of stories about her parents and about her grandparents and about her hometown and when we packed my wife Sheila said to me you know you're gonna have a press conference tomorrow and I said yes and she said do you know the names of your grandparents and I said no and she said they may ask you in the press conference because you talk about your mother they may ask you about your grandparents name and I looked it up I could find we had a paper of something from a holocaust museum and I looked it up and I looked at their names and basically the name were probably mentioned once or twice but the error was that I don't have to remember it and it's really totally unimportant the names I have to remember how they were like but their name was totally arbitrary so my grandfather was named Isaac who cares does it say anything about him no but the fact that whenever he was in a tense situation with my mother doesn't matter if it was a fire or a car heading away the first thing he would do he would look at my mother and wink you know it could be a wolf coming somebody shooting at them the first thing he would say like it's going to be okay now this is something that tells me a lot of a person the fact that it doesn't matter what happens first thing you reassure your daughter and see that she's okay and then you can deal with whatever life risk you have. It tells you much more of the guys and the fact that his name was Isaac. It tells you that he's dependable, he has full of charm, he is there for you and it reminds me of certain elements and the, how do you say, the forging through things like the character in L'Agent Immobilier or the constant plate spinning of the character in The Constant Peddler. It tells a lot, a can-do spirit. Yeah, I feel that, you know, if there is something about art that I seek, I think people use art for many things, is really some kind of a belief that we can transcend. I mean, if I try to kind of see it some kind of a substitute for a religion, then, you know, religion tells us that there's something out there. There's somebody watching us, somebody doing something. And I think that for me, many times good art says there is something beyond our understanding that exists. And there is a way to get a step closer to it. Maybe not to unveil it, but we can Gadget. And I'm saying La Jeanne Immobilier, by the way, you know that it can, in the US, you can see it in the Criterion channel. It's called the Middleman. 
So I think that the agent immobilier, it has this aspect that the guy in it is not nice in any way. There's nothing nice about it. But you see in the series that wherever the starting point, he can get better. So if he's obnoxious, he can become less obnoxious, you know. If he's unloyal, he can become a little bit more loyal. The idea that we can move, it's really, really important. I've read, I think maybe a couple of days ago, some kind of research about post-trauma in the First World War. I think it was the first research of post-trauma. And they discovered that from all the positions in the army, the people who were most post-traumatic were the people who would be put in balloons and sent up as scouts. And the thing about it is that those people, they were up in the air, they could say when there was an air attack or when soldiers would come. Their job was really, really important. But the thing was that when people started shooting at them, either from the ground or from the air, they couldn't do anything. You know, they couldn't even dodge. They were in a balloon in the air. You know, they were sitting ducks. You know, they were not sitting ducks. They were left ducks, but they couldn't move and discovered that those people were the most traumatized one. Now, I think that people who were in warfare would always be traumatized, but the idea that you can't do anything, you're powerless against the reality, there is something so horrible about it. And there is something about art that helps you kind of open a trapdoor into a realm of imagination or something that you create. So the fact that you can imagine something, it's already an active action. It's really like my father told me when he was a child during the Holocaust, that he would always try to to imagine all kinds of alternative universes. Like, you know, an alternative universe where there were still Nazis, but instead of hunting down Jews, they were hunting down red-headed girls with freckles. And then my father would imagine that he would hide the red-headed girls with freckles from the Nazis, you know, or that they seek Jews, but whenever they find them, they give them chocolates. I don't know. I asked my father, the child, what was the point in imagining this word? And he said, everything that you can imagine can potentially exist. So whenever I was hiding in a hole in the ground and whenever I could imagine something new, I would make the space in which I live bigger and bigger and wider and make it to this kind of infinite plane by kind of unfolding my imagination. And I think that always kind of good to remind ourselves that we have an option, we're active, we can act. I think that there is something about this age that we live in, that it's an age I think that everybody feels trapped, everybody feels wrong, everybody feels that there is no responsible adult up there. But the idea is what you do with that. And I feel that it's all about maybe creating some kind of individual sphere and from this individual sphere trying to connect with others instead of kind of ganging in to this post which you like or dislike or saying that you hate this guy or like this guy kind of avoiding this kind of binary reduction of yourself just so you feel you belong to a big group you know and I think that the moment again like I talked about my mother seeing her history as a pearl necklace I think that the moment that we see humanity as a pearl necklace and not some kind of equation in which everybody has to give you the same results then there will be some kind of breathing option to any person who tries it to feel better. And again, and I'm not saying that all my life I felt this way. When I was younger, I think I wanted to change the world. Now I admit I mostly want to survive it. And I think that there is something looming from above. Let's say when I started writing in the late 80s, early 90s, when I was a teenager, you know, and everything, the world kind of gave you this kind of promise that things are going to get better, that things are going to get solved. Fukuyama wrote his piece about the end of history. No more wars. We're going to solve all our problems. 
problems. And I think that in this kind of time, this idea of saying, I want to put my things in a center stage because everybody would listen to it kind of seemed like not only a, a young man's inspiration, but also something that had to do with the side guys. But right now, I really, really feel it's time as if each of us should go to his boroughs and not necessarily seek the default town square, CNN, Fox News, your feed in Facebook, all those kind of things that makes you feel less alone, but for the price of kind of reducing yourself to something that is very, very binary in nature. I think hide under a cover with a good book or maybe a film. I think this nurturing, comforting thing that you provide in your art. You mentioned opening doorways to other lands. And so I think hinting at that from your very first story, I think that was Pipes or Lyland or what's the name of the story where the character unzipping. unzipping. And this other world where your fictions, your lies, I guess in Lyland, come to life and they're magical. That's something that recurs in your fiction. Yeah, yeah. I really feel that again, you know, the way we tell stories, the way we deal with facts is something that again according to my mother's storytelling it could be very automatic or default like you can find yourself with an answer but actually it's not a satisfying answer it's just the answer that people give each other you know I mean I think as a parent many times when my child asked me questions then somehow all those questions seemed very difficult and then I realized that whenever somebody asks you a question and you think about it and you want to answer it and not just echo or repeat an answer that somebody gave it to you before then basically all the questions are kind of difficult. It's difficult to articulate something if you actually articulate it and not repeating something that somebody told you five minutes ago. Yes, I think there's a kind of motif in your fiction of opening out into this enchanted world. But I say something else that's interesting about you. And I thought that other writers that I speak to might be the same after I had this encounter with you is that you are very open about sharing your dreams. There's a blurring between <laughs> this dream and what is story and what is life. And you were so open. You shared your recurrent dream about drowning your imaginary twin brother and so many other dreams, really not seeming to care whether it sounded crazy or wild. And I thought, oh, this is great. So for other writers, you know, maybe if they have a fantastic or surreal element, that will be a way of them telling how their imagination works. It doesn't. That question is the worst question I could ever ask anybody but you, because they think, oh, you're going to try to hack into my brain. I'm going to say something embarrassing. No, no. I wish you'll hack into my brain and I wish that I say something embarrassing, you know. It's better (laughs) than if I say something boring. Yeah, this is what I feel with you. It's like, you don't care. Here's my brain. Here's the key to the house of my brain. And, you know, make yourself at home and feed the goldfish. Well, with me, I must say that, you know, let's say when I did the exhibition about my mother, then I think that I kind of yearn to have interviews like the one we have now. Not because I want to spread the word or conquer the word or whatever. Mostly because of the fact that I think that, let's say, when you go through an artistic process, then for me, interviews are like therapy. It's really like therapy to life. Because I did a lot of things, but I necessarily think about it when I do them. But when I speak to you and you ask questions and I think about it or when I need to explain them, basically I think that, let's say, the theories about my writings, they all came from interviews. So whenever somebody asks me a question that makes me even feel awkward or quiet, then I say, okay, it's good because maybe there is a chance here to, to discover something that I didn't know before. You're saying it's a kind of therapy is answering questions. Is therapy actually good for your writing process? I mean, like the normal therapy. 
therapy? Well, the thing about therapy is that basically I began writing after my best friend killed himself. And before he killed himself, he was kind of seen by an army psychiatrist who said that he was allowed to carry his firearm. And I tried to argue that he had the fixation that he wants to shoot himself and that they should take his rifle. And the psychiatrist said, you know, I went to university for seven years and you're an 18-year-old asshole with a big mouth, so shut up or I'm going to put you on trial or something. And my, I think my reflex after my friend killed himself was that I should not interact with psychologists and psychiatrists. Now, it's not a rational decision. It's a little bit like somebody who was bitten by a scorpion or something, you know. I'm almost psychology-phobic, but not really. It's just that there is something about this kind of idea of somebody who can understand your mind that I both yearn for it, but also kind of doubt it. And this idea that you pay somebody and he's interested in you, it's kind of almost like mental prostitution or something, you know? It's really like, it sounds like you go there only if you don't have smart friends to talk to, you know? But at the same time, I realize how much help it brings people. And actually, I have friends who are psychologists, so it's not as if I'm against this vocation. It's just that maybe because of my biography, I had to go for a plan B. And I wrote my first story, Pipes, about two or three weeks after my friend died. So I guess that this idea that I passed the trauma and I can't go to a psychologist or psychotherapist kind of made me look for a plan B and kind of made me a writer. Well, that's good because you can spread the happiness and the joy even through the trauma of those experiences with others. And you know when it gets at the end of going to therapist some kind of beautiful artwork. You don't get, <laughs> here's this painting yeah, or the yeah. story we made together. No, no, I think in the end, I think that let's say the beautiful thing about art is that you can go through something that is traumatic. I don't know, an accident or loss or breakup or whatever. And this experience is pain and sadness. And when you write it down, when you write something inspired by it, you take these things that kind of feels negative and you turn it to something that is beautiful, to something that kind of gives something to people. So I think it's really like, you know, I don't know how you call it in English, maybe Rumpelstutzkin or whatever, you know, this fairy tale. So in this fairy tale, the hero, she's asked to weave a gold out of straw. And my wife always says that kind of writing stories is kind of weaving gold out of straw because there is something that is really, I don't know, like your parents forgot you somewhere when you were a child and you write a beautiful story about it. So there is some kind of a feeling of closure and mending. But having said that, I would rather that my parents wouldn't forget me in the first place. You know, it's as if like, I don't know, there's something about writing that helps you heal yourself or heal not only yourself, but help heal people around you. But at the same time, I would rather not feel bad in the first place and not need to heal myself, you know? Yeah, that goes into that happiness or wanting the absence of pain. But I think that if we didn't have any, then you wonder if you're really alive. That's how we get to know ourselves and each other. No, for sure. I think that one of the most powerful sentences I've read, and I probably misquoted, was in Faulkner's Wild Palms, where the protagonist says that between nothing and grief, I would always choose grief. And again, there is some kind of hubris about it, because nobody said that life is a buffet and you can choose what you want, you know. But I think that there is something about in this statement saying between void and suffering, I'd rather be suffering so I'll feel human, I'll feel my emotion, I'll feel my life and not feel anything, then this is something that I can totally identify with. And speaking to this community, which you gathered an audience of your readers, watchers of your film, 
film and television, you also have this other community online with the alphabet soup. And what is that like? It's kind of a continuation of what you're doing, but in a different form. Yes, I started this kind of newsletter, a weekly newsletter. It's on a platform called the Substack and it's called Alphabet Soup. And the idea was that many times as a writer, there are many things that I basically I write every day and I write all kinds of stuff. And some of this stuff becomes a story or an op-ed or an essay. And some of it is kind of a hybrid thing or a little bit strange or just an idea or a script or a beginning of a script. And the idea of having some kind of community in which I can share things that I write from all forms and all styles and which I can get feedback that will affect what I write. It's like there was a time in the newsletter where people would just send me photos that inspired them or tell me something that happened and I would commit to write a story out of one of them. And I wrote a few very good stories basically coming from this kind of inspiration capsules of others or doing all those kind of more interactive things. I think it created the written text that I wouldn't have written in any other way. Because for example, in the newsletter, I have this thing called Human Rights, but it's rights, W-R-I-T-E-S, in which basically I write my thoughts about writing, about life, about the relationship between my fictional world and my real world. And this could be just like strong metaphors that come to my mind or a good point for a writer to remember or something like that. It is totally, you know, I would have nothing to do with it in any other form. But I say, you know, sending it out as a mail, somebody has a spare five minutes, either it will affect them or not. And again, you know, I'm very, very open to doing stuff that people in the community ask for. It's really like some people said, we want to interview you in the community. I said, okay, so send me questions. Other people said, why don't you write poetry? So I said, okay, I'll try to write poetry. And also it gives me a chance to interact with illustrators, which is something that I always enjoy because very much like an interview, when you speak with somebody who tries to interpret your work, then through their interpretation and through their perception, you always learn something about what you wanted to say originally. Yes, and you're famous for your collaborations with illustrators. And I can say also that I find your stories are challenging, for, for me, from my perspective, are challenging to illustrate in just one image because there are many fantastic images that, well, it's hard to narrow it down to the one <laughs> that captures the essence. Yes. But I am up for the challenge. I know through the stories and the exhibitions and different projects around your parents that they taught themselves and they taught you to not accept what is given to you to find your own way, to use your imagination for and take that knowledge that you have. And not just the knowledge, it's important. It's what you do with it in the world. So as you consider our education models or as you're educating your son, what were those important things that you pass on to him? Well, I felt, you know, that first of all, with my parents being children of war, basically not having any formal education and not having a family to support them, they were very much busy with material surviving, earning money, being able to give us healthcare or food and all those kind of things. And I think that there was something about the wishes for us. They wanted us to transcend that. It's a little bit when I would speak to my parents and ask them, what would you want me to be? Then they would never be able to tell me what they want me to be because they were never there. But they were able to tell me what they don't want me to be. My father always said, if you be just rich, just kind of important, just famous and nothing else, then I'd be very disappointed. But he couldn't name that thing. With me, I think I always imagined it as if my parents got me, my brother, my sister to this kind of wall and they said, we cannot go there like Moses could not go into Israel but we will bend down kind of climb on our back and you'll get there you live that life of somebody who can transcend basically just seeking food and can go somewhere else and I must say that as a child it was very very difficult because when you love your parents you want to do what they want you to do but it would be easier if my parents would say we want you to be a lawyer or a doctor or an engineer but basically I think they wanted me to live a life in which I'd be very connected to what I'm doing and that I will find it 
important. And in a strange way, if you look at my brother, sister, and me, my brother is a left-wing political activist. My sister, she's very, very religious, a very religious Jew. She has 11 children and more than 50 grandchildren at the age of 60. And basically, she dedicated her life into praying and believing. And I'm a writer. So for one thing, my parents are happy. None of us is rich. And all of us try to change the world. And all of us, in a way, try to transcend the world. If it's through imagination or through belief or through ethics. Yes, well, you have certainly shown that to us. And it's possible to change the world through words. And you've certainly shown that there is no limits once you liberate your imagination. So we're always excited to hear what comes out of Edgar Carrot's mind and his collaborations with others. So thank you, Edgar Carrot, for inviting us into your imaginative world and sharing these stories about your family, memory, the importance of nurturing our imaginations so we may grow, learn, regain our strength and heal. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you, Mia. It's always a pleasure speaking to you. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviews produced on this episode was Jamie Lammers. Digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler and Megan Hagenbarth. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.